we have nursery this week, so if you'd like to use the nursery, um, Liz has signed up for that, and she would be delighted to uh, minister to you and your family in that way. For the rest of us, we have been considering the, um, the love of God um, in, over the last couple weeks, and that is in the context of the greater series that we've been doing since the beginning of the year, and that is knowing God. Knowing God. And we know that, um, as the Word of God has said, as we've been sharing, that this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent, that God has desired when He created us to have a relationship with us. And that is ultimately because God loves us. A verse that you all know very well is John 3.16, I'm sure, and it says what? For God in this manner, or God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. God loves you, and God desires for you to have a relationship with Him. And that relationship is a matter of knowing Him. And so as we have gone through this passage, as we've um, been going through the concept of knowing God, we have looked at who God is, the existence and exclusiveness of God, that He is, and that He is the only God that there is. We have looked then as well as the composition of God, that God is a triunity, that he is one God, but that, that one God is made up of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the, the Holy Spirit, though distinct, yet one. And so as Jesus was on the earth and he said to Philip, Philip says, show us the Father, and it suffices us. He said, Philip, have I been th- with you this long and you haven't recognized me? Paul says to the Colossians, he says that in Jesus Christ the fullness of the Godhead was bodily. And so, Jesus Christ was God, just as well as the Father was God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And so, there is one God, here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And yet, that one God, Yahweh, is three. And as a math major, it's mind-boggling. But I accept it as being true. Why? Because God said so. That's exactly right. You know, it doesn't matter whether Bob can comprehend it. It just matters whether God can, right? Okay, so as long as God's good with it, then Bob should be good with it. And so that's a, an important thing. We then begin looking at the attributes of God. We looked at the natural attributes of God, the fact that God is sovereign, the fact that God is limitless. We looked at then the vocational attributes, that God is the creator, that God is the judge, God is the savior. We began then looking at the moral attributes, and we spent two weeks looking at the holiness of God and how that applies to me. And as we go through each one of these, We've said that we're going to be applying each one of these to ourselves because as the children of God, you are called to be conformed to the image and likeness of God, of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And so, therefore, we are all supposed to take on the fruit of the Spirit, which I think are the attributes of the Spirit as well. And so these are things that should be evidenced in us as well. And so we considered then the holiness of God, and then we've moved now into the love of God. And this is the third week that we have discussed the love of God. And so first we looked at the consideration of God's love, and in that we looked at the definition of that love, and in the Old Testament there was the word ahav, and ahav is then a determined love. It's someone choosing to make a decision to place an affection upon something or someone else. That comes into the New Testament as the word agape, or agape, agapao, which is a selfless love. And we talked about the various forms of love in the Greek, and eros, eros is a selfish love, I, I love pepperoni pizza. You know, it's an eros. It's an erotic love. We use that word in a sexual, physical manner, but it really means what it is. It's a selfish love. I love something for what it does for me, period. And so when it stops pleasing me, I stop loving it. There is the word phileo, which is the, the term of a friendly kind of love. We use it in the term of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Okay, And so it's it's a mutual kind of love, and it basically says that I'll give you whatever you need, except for if there's only enough for me and you. I hope you can find it someplace, because it's mine. It ends there. But there is then this greater form of love, which is agape, agape, agapao, and that says that if there's only enough porridge for me and you, it's yours. If I only have one shirt, it's your shirt. That's, in a sense, where the Mikasa Sukasa comes from. My house is your house. Because it doesn't really belong to me. It ultimately belongs to God. And so, therefore, since God has allowed me to have it, it is only as a steward, and therefore, you have a greater need than I do. 
and so loves in that manner. And God then loved us in that manner in that he saw our need and determined that our need was greater than his own desires, his, his own um, self, and so he came into the world to die for us. In fact, before he ever created us, he knew that we would have that need, and he created us anyway. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Then the manifestation, the expression of God's love then for us is his provision and his protection. He's provided for us salvation. He's provided for us in so many ways. How many of you are breathing right now? How many, how many of you are actually at this moment saying to yourself, to your lungs, okay, exhale, inhale, exhale, inhale, huh? Now you got my head, right? Now, now you're all thinking about breathing, you know? Wow, am I breathing through my nose or am I breathing through my mouth? Some of you are breathing through your ears. No, anyways, so, and so, but you don't stop and think about that. And, and you don't stop to think about the fact that how much, boy, I sure hope the oxygen content is, is okay here. You know, you just do it. You know, you just, you just accept these things that God has provided because of God's love. And, and we're told that God makes his sun to shine upon the just and the unjust. He gives rain to the righteous and the unrighteous. God's grace, God's love is far-reaching. For God so loved the world, not just his children. God loved the world. And we're told in, by John in his first epistle that, that Jesus Christ is not only the propitiation, the payment for our sins, he's also the propitiation, the payment for the sins of the whole world. The whole world. That, that throws that, that five-point Calvinism tulip stuff out the window. It's unbiblical. I mean, I know I stand opposed to many of Christendom today in that, and a lot of big-name authors. But that L stands for limited atonement, which means that Christ only died for the elect, and that is not biblical. Can I say it otherwise? It's unbiblical. You get it? And so if it's not biblical, it's unbiblical, it's not something I hold to. Jesus, or God says through his apostle John that Jesus Christ is a propitiation for the sins of the whole world. And you've got to do a whole lot of gymnastics to get rid of what that really means. To say that it only applies to, to the elect. Okay. His protection, though. His protection. God continually protects us then. What did he, remember when we saw this a couple weeks ago, Romans chapter 8, where what can remove me from the, the love of Christ? There's nothing. There's pest, not sword, not pestilence, not, not earthquakes, not famines, not angels, nor demons, nor, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything. There's nothing that can happen in this world that can remove me from the love of Christ, or as Jesus said, that can take me out of the Father's hand. You can't even jump out. Do you ever, dads, ever hold your, your, your kid's hand? You know, and, and, and then they try to pry their hand out, or their finger out, and they take their other hand and they're prying as hard as they can, and so every once in a while you let this finger kind of open up, so they think they're getting someplace, and, 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 and then as they start prying the other finger, you kind of let that one go as you close this one, and you know, and the reality is, what, you're, what are you teaching them? You're stronger than they are, okay? And we get it on the human plane, but sometimes we don't think God is able, is, is stronger than we are. You know, sometimes God may allow one of those fingers to go up just to kind of give us a little fun, you know? Guess what? There is nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. His protection is fully there. That's how much he loves you. And then we went into then the application of God's love. Our love for him, the consideration of God's love for us, should provoke a desire to worship him. It's displayed in our devotion. We love God because he first loved us. I mean, and as I said back then, you know, if, if focusing on God's love and how much he has loved you and what he has done for you, if that's not enough for you to be overwhelmed with love for him, I don't know what will be. It's not his holiness. It's not his separateness. That's kind of like the, 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 the judge side of things, you know? As we get into righteousness, we'll talk about that too. But his love is just exuding. It's overwhelming. It's, it's what he has done for you. And if you have no, nothing that wells up inside of you that says, I want to do for God because of what he's done for me, I really, I mean, I, I really got to question your relationship with him. I mean, if there is just no love, I don't know where it's at. But then, when you are filled with this worship and this desire to have devotion toward him, it's going to work out in your obedience. Jesus said, he loves me 
is the one who what? Keeps my commandments. Who obeys my commandments. In fact, through John again, in that same chapter 2, where we read about Jesus Christ being the propitiation for our sins, we like that one. But just a couple verses later, he says, He that says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Now, we like the, the forgiveness side. It's kind of rough when we hear the, uh, the obedience side, though. Because there's a whole lot of people looking for fire insurance and not a relationship. See, I got, I got home insurance with USAA. I pay them money. It's a great relationship. I pay them money. And every year, I what? Pay them more money. And somewhere along the line, I may have a what? A claim. Have a hailstorm, messes up my, 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 my roof. They're going to come, and they're going to take some of the money that I've been paying them over the years and give me a new roof. Make sense? Now, it may just be that I have a catastrophic thing, and they'll come and they'll actually shell out more than I gave them. But why are they shelling it out? Because I paid them. Now, am I looking to have a relationship with the president of the USA? Not at all. I don't even know who it is. I couldn't even tell you at this moment what his name is. I don't even know who's on the board of USAA. Does that make sense? But that's insurance. Insurance, I don't need to know the person. Insurance, I'm just I'm making payments and hoping that one day it's going to pay out for me. Some people are looking for fire insurance. They just want to get away from hell. They just don't want the flame. And so they, they're buying. You can't buy it, right? You understand you can't buy this. They think they're buying fire insurance. But what God is offering is not an insurance policy. He's offering a relationship. A relationship. Just as I have a relationship with Andrew. And my desire for Andrew, that one day, as he gets older and he reaches his teenage years, and he goes through that period of time, that every one of you understand as an older person, where you begin to question your mom and dad. And you begin to determine on your own what it is that you want to adhere to. My desire is that that love relationship is so significant that he desires to please me. That he desires to obey. Not because he has to, but because he wants to. Because he loves me. Because of my love for him. And I remember years ago, and I can say it's to Andrew, Anna now because she's at that, that age. But I remember asking him years ago, buddy, do you love me? And he says, yeah, daddy, I love you. Why do you love me? You know what his answer was? Do you remember what your answer was? Because you first loved me. You get it? And why do your kids love you? Because you're the best mom and dad in the world? Well, hopefully they think you are. But you better be to them. You get it? They only love you because there's a relationship. They were born to you. I mean, have you ever met a, a child who has had abusive parents? And they still what? They still love them, don't they? Do you know why? It's mom and dad. And so if, if God is truly your daddy, if he's your Abba, he's your daddy, then you're going to love him. And, and you're going to want to obey him so you can please him. Not because you have to, but because you want to. And you get to the point where when you have sinned, disobeyed God, rebelled against his authority. Now I know you don't like, we don't like to use those terms, but that's a fact, that's what it is. That when that happens, that someone's not going to have to come and slap you upside the head. Say, hey, you're supposed to obey. Bend over. Here's the paddle. And make you, force you into obedience. But rather, you will recognize that what you have done was sin, disobedience, or rebellion against your daddy. The one who loves you. More than any earthly daddy will ever love you. And you will confess your sin 
and he will be faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And that's why verse 10 of chapter 1 of 1 John says, if you say you have not sinned, you make God a liar, and his word is not in, him, in you. We like to pretend we don't sin. We like to pretend we don't disobey God. We like to pretend we're, we're self-righteous. But you're not. God knows it. Your daddy knows it. How much do you want to please daddy? And then we moved on. The consideration of God's love should provoke our desire to reflect him. <clears throat> now, I don't want cookie cutters I, in my kids. I really don't. There are sometimes they may think I do. But I don't want cookie cut things. But you know what? I would almost like to be bold enough, and I can't be bold enough as Paul, which Paul said, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. I would love to see my children to walk in my steps in love for the Lord their God. But that's only going to happen to the extent that I truly reflect it in my life. I am to be a reflection of God's love through my life to others. Paul tells the children of um, Ephesus, he says, therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love. The first step of being imitators of God is walking in love. If people were to sit down and receive a survey on your life, on Bob's life, and they had a series of questions to answer about your life, and those questions all had to deal with seeing the love of God being manifested through you in the lives of other people, how would you rate Jesus said, by this all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Our desire to reflect him, the scope of that reflection, the scope of that love toward the others that we were told to, to love others. In fact, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul was telling, he says, listen, he says, if there be therefore any consolation of Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any uh, bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than themselves. And let not every man look on his own things, but let every man look on the things of others. And let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form, the very morphe, the very nature of God, thought it or not robbery to be equal with God because he was God, he took upon himself the form of a servant, the, the schema, the outward appearance of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so we're told to have the same mind that Christ had toward us, toward others, and that is that it's not about me, it's about you. And that my value, the value that I place upon myself, is nothing compared to the value that I place upon you. You are a whole lot more valuable than I am. And your needs, your desires, they far outweigh my needs and my desires. And so, who are those others that I am supposed to value higher than myself? Who are those others that I'm supposed to put the needs above myself? First, we talked about they're your neighbors. And again, I'm not going to go through the whole thing. Who is my neighbor? It's the people you come into contact with. Yeah. Yeah, who are the people in my neighborhood? In the neighborhood, in the neighborhood. Anyways, they're the people that you meet while you're walking on the street. They're the people that you meet each day. Good job. All right, there we go. So, teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor. How? As yourself. And it's just like the first one. We talked about this on Friday night at the discipleship meeting. It's just as. Too much today in our, in our realm, in our pop psychology, 
they, they've turned around, this whole thing flipped around, and they said, you know, we really aren't doing this properly because we're not loving ourselves. See, it says I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, and I really don't love myself, and so therefore I have to love myself better so I can love my neighbor better, and therefore then I can love God better. And so the reason that we're really not loving God with all our hearts, soul, mind, and strength is because we really don't love ourselves. Folks, that's out of the pit of hell. <laughs> that, that is from the pit of hell. That's what Satan says. Hath God really said? Listen, God doesn't want you to eat of that tree of the knowledge of the evil because he doesn't want you to be like him. Listen, I'm number three, baby. God's number one. Others are number two. And I'm number three. Now, I appreciate Colt McCoy and a um, guy from Oklahoma. Sam Bradford, they had on YouTube probably still is out there on YouTube. You can go check it out. I'm number two, baby. Okay? This whole thing about God's number one in their life, and, and they're just number two. And I, it was really good. I, I, I love it. It was great. I mean, two top quarterbacks in the nation stating this. But they still miss it. Okay? Because I'm not number two. I'm, I'm number three. I'm number three. And that really puts the bummer on it because only the top two make it to the championship. Anyways, so, okay? But I'm number three, and that's what we're called to be. We're called to, first of all, in that, the scope of the others, to love my neighbors. Secondly, I'm to love the brethren. Again, by this all will know that you're my disciples. If you have love for one another, do you really love one another? That comes out in an everyday thing, not just while you're here, not just you know, when someone gives a testimony and you're amen and you're praising the Lord and you're saying, man, I feel for you, brother. You know, it's what happens on the outside is whether you really love the brethren or not. But now we want to pick it up today with this third part, and I said last week, or two weeks ago, that if you were struggling with the loving your neighbors and loving your brethren, you certainly don't want to be here today. And so either you weren't here two weeks ago or you've forgotten, so, and, and you're here. Because now we get really rough. Because now, I mean, that's easy. Loving, loving my neighbors, you know, I mean, I can potentially do that. Loving the brethren, you love God, and so that's an easy thing. But loving my, my enemies? We read a little bit earlier from, from Luke chapter 6. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew's version of Luke. And in Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48, we read Jesus stating, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you got? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. God desires for you to be a perfectionist. Do you get that? In, in, in the immediate context of this statement, now I understand this is all Sermon on the Mount, but in the very immediate context of the statement, therefore be perfect, even as your Father in Heaven is perfect, it has everything to do with what? Love. Love. The expression of your love. And the expression of your love is not just loving people who love you back. That's pretty simple. That's pretty easy. You gave me a pizza and I can give you a piece of it. <laughs> That's pretty simple stuff. But the real measure of love and whether you have the love of God is when people are crucifying you and spitting on you and mocking you for you to be able to look down and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I wonder, if I lived 2,000 years ago, which side of the cross I'd be on. Would I be, being, if I was Jewish, would I be one of the ones who was mocking? The one, ones who were spitting? One of the ones who was yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And I think I would be. 23 years I went to church. 
I learned about God. I learned about Jesus. I knew about all that. And still I chose to live my own life. Even now that I know that I know him and I have a relationship, there are still times when I still struggle in that war between the flesh and the spirit. But Jesus commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were still at enmity with God, he loved us. And that's what Romans 5 is all about. That we were at war with God. We were enemies of God. And God loved us. I remember when we attacked Iraq, challenging the people to pray for the Iraqis as well. I remember a lot of not so positive comments about that. There were people who understood. That's not to say that we don't go to war and we don't stand up for what is right. But if someone doesn't know Christ and I shoot them, which I, I'm supposed to do, what happens in that instant that I eliminate one of those enemies? What happens to them? They go to hell. That little guy's got it. And so my prayer is for the Iraqis and Afghanis, as well as these Muslims in these countries that are persecuting Christians, that they would come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. I don't pray for the hellfire and brimstone upon them. Do you even think about them? Or do you just, just don't even think about it at all? What about the person now being more in our face who abuses you, who treats you unkindly? And maybe it's for the name of Jesus, maybe it's not. Maybe it's the, the boys in the, in the boat who try to, to, to flip our canoe, huh? Maybe it's the boys on the shore who, who mock us as we, as we paddle by and they, and they say, Joke, joke, joke. They don't know what they're doing. They're acting in their flesh, just as I used to do all the time, and I struggle against now. They're a soul, they're a spirit, they're a person made in the image and likeness of God, just as I was. Do you really want that person who spits on you, maybe not physically, to be saved? Or would you like nothing more than God to rain down <laughs> all those hailstones of Joshua's days and go boom, 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 Teach him a lesson. But we're called to love our enemies. Finally, we're called to love our spouses. Now, I've been getting a lot of harassment at home about this. Why, why, why enemies and spouses got put together in a message, and I said, it wasn't my, God, God did this a couple weeks ago, remember? Everything went, you know, it was timing-wise. I had to split it at this point. But this is a sad statement, but I've done a lot of marital counseling. You are to love your, well, that, that you is plural. That's a y'all, y'all. Yeah, this, is, this, is, this is not a Mormon place. Yeah, it's definitely directed to men, then, if it was to multiple wives. Anyways, so. Um, no, that is y'all, y'all, y'all are to love your spouses. You guys, I'll tell you. All right, anyways, but in the marital counseling that, that I've done, the reason that I have to do marital counseling, it's, not, not, it's, it's very, very unusual. I might be able to count it on one finger. Um, how many times I've ever had somebody come to me uh, uh, proactively saying that they wanted to be trained in their marriage. Okay. Normally, when I have marital counseling, it's because what? Yeah, they, yeah, the other one, that's right, that my, my spouse needs help, that's right. But they've waited so long doing it the wrong way that they don't, what? They don't eros each other anymore. Because that's all they had anyway. So they don't love each other. 
They don't love. The tingles are gone, you know? And now they're ready to do what? Yeah, that's, that's a nice way. That's, just a, that's, that's, that's probably the nicest thing they could do with each other. Anyways, they, they want to destroy each other. I mean, they don't want to just put each other out of misery. They just want to destroy each other and have it done with. And, and usually, the, the line of reasoning goes this way. God calls you to love your spouse. Can you, can you love her or him as your spouse? No, no. Well, you're, you're called to, to love the brethren, you know, to, to, to those that are in Christ. Well, I can't believe that they're even a believer. God calls you to love your neighbor. Can you even see them as a neighbor? I wish they weren't. <laughs> I'd like them to be in the next county. Well, God calls you to love your enemy. Could you put them in that group? Oh, I could put them in that group. Well, God says you haven't got an out. Even if you see your spouse as an enemy, you're called to. Love them. Now, hopefully, none of you are in that category. Hopefully, we're all on this other end. And I put this at the end because I feel this is the highest form of love. For me, I could have put brethren first and then neighbors and then enemies and spouses and really put it in what Bob considers to be a greater, 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 greater form of love. Not because it's harder, but because to the world, it reflects a greater love. And in Ephesians chapter 5, 24 to 28, the husbands are told to love their wives even as Christ also loved the church. I am to love my wife. Nursery, thank you. Where's my wife? There's a rapture. I missed it. Marcia's gone. That's right. You missed it too. Anyways, um, yeah, laugh at me. You're all here. Anyways, um, I'm to love Marcia in the same manner that Jesus, not as one another loved the church, but as Jesus loved the church. And he sacrificed himself for me. You know what? I fall so short of that mark. But that's my goal. That's my desire. It's my yearning. I want to be a living testimony to the world that as they look at me, in the treatment of my wife, that they can get a picture of what Jesus looks like to the church. In that passage, Paul goes on and he says that you ought to, men, nurture and cherish your wife even as you do your own body. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh. But then he goes on and he says, um, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be cleaved to his wife And these two shall be one flesh. Now, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, if we go back to Genesis chapter 2, and we talk about the man leaving his father and his mother and being joined to his wife and being one flesh, we understand that as a physical union. We understand it as a consummation of a marriage. And Paul says, listen, that is the exact picture that's supposed to be of Jesus and the church. That That is the closeness, the intimate bond that Jesus has with the church. That in the fullness of the unity of the spirit, the soul, and the flesh. In that love, that is a sanctified love. It's not an erotic love saying, I love my wife for a way she pleases me. It's not a phileo kind of love saying that we're in this thing together, which is teamwork. But it's an agapao love saying that I have chosen to set my affection upon you and I am willing to die for your betterment. Guys, you're willing to take and suck up the blame, even if you don't feel like it's yours. You'll be happier. But it doesn't matter, regardless of whether you're happy or not. Regardless of whether it makes a change or not. The fact is that you take her sin upon you. He that knew no sin became sin that we might have the righteousness of Christ. This is a mind I don't have time to go into all this, but this is very mind-boggling, guys. I, come to Canada with me sometime, okay? I mean, when you begin to, to realize that you are to be Christ in that relationship, you have a great responsibility. But in Titus chapter 2, 
women, you're told to love your husbands. In fact, in Ephesians, when you're not even told to love your husbands there, you're told to submit unto your husbands, but it's supposed to be like the church, and we know that we love him because what? He first loved us. And so you're not excused from loving your, your spouse, from loving your husband. You can't say, well, he doesn't love me like Jesus loved the church, so therefore I don't have to love him. That's bunk. You still have to love him because God loved you. And even if you see him as the enemy, <laughs> you still got to love him. You get it? And so, ladies, you can portray to this world, sometimes even more so than a guy, the greatness of God's love. When the women of this world look at you and say, I don't get it. Now, we've got to move quickly. Um, we have a lot of great testimonies today, and that's wonderful, except for when it comes to time for preaching God's word, then I feel like I'm pressured when I get to, to noon. And, uh, and I really feel pressured because we're supposed to be getting in the van and taking off to go to, to Red Top Mountain State Park for something that's starting at 3. So, um, so as we go through the manifestation of his love, if you think I talk like the, uh, the, the FedEx guy already, we're really flying, Okay. How is our love manifested? Let's turn to Galatians chapter 5, okay? We're going to be moving right along here. And if you have the sermon note sheets, you have um, a lot of those references already there for you. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 15, it says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed of one another. True love is what? Is other-focused. It's service-oriented. It's not taking the freedom. It's not taking the liberty that Christ has given me. Listen, I am no longer under the law. I no longer am in fear of condemnation. So I might as well continue to sin that grace may abound, right? No. No, no, no! That's... Paul said, God forbid. No, that's not right. Rather, he has freed me from the law so that I can serve you. Go all the way back now to the Good Samaritan. Remember we talked about that parable of the Good Samaritan, who's my neighbor? Okay? The first guy, you got the Jewish guy who's beat up and he's left for dead. He looks like he's what? Dead. Remember when we talked about this? We kind of went through this, right? And the first guy that comes through is the priest. What does the priest see? A dead guy. Potentially a dead guy. He doesn't know if he's dead or not, but potentially he's dead. And so the priest has to do what? Stay, stay clean. He can't touch the dead guy, because if he touches the dead guy, he's unclean. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to serve God. And so he touches the dead guy, he can't serve God. He's under, command. he's under the law. He's under God's command that he can't touch a dead guy. So what should he do? Stay away from the dead guy. He passes by, not on the other side of the street. If you understand the wadi that he's walking on, I mean, at places, that wadi is only like this big, okay? So depending on where this dead guy's laying at, I mean, he might be tiptoeing along the, 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 the edge of the, of, the, of the precipice going down there, okay? Well, the next guy that comes through is a Levite. What's he getting ready to do? He's going to serve at the temple. What does he see? A dead guy. He can't touch him. He's under the law. He's under command. The next one who comes through is a Samaritan. What do we know about the Samaritan? He's not under the law. What does he see? He sees a guy who needs help. <laughs> and he's not worried about whether he's going to get unclean and defiled because he touches this guy who happens to be alive. And he takes him to the inn. And Jesus says, who is his neighbor? And you're Samaritan. You know, like the pig dog, you know. What's the point? The point is not just my neighbor there, but there's a side statement that's being made there too that is being brought out now in Galatians 5, and that is the liberty, the freedom that I've been given from the law is not so I can go out and listen to whatever music I want to listen to. I can wear whatever I want to wear. I can eat whatever I want to eat. I can talk however I want to talk. I can do whatever I want to do. No, it's given to me so I can serve you. And I can serve the unclean of the world without worrying about whether I'm going to be tarnished. Because all authority has been given unto him. And that authority has been given unto us. And I can love my neighbor, and I can love my enemy. And I can love the brethren, and I can love my spouse. Without fear of breaking a law of God 
and incurring God's wrath because I was trying to serve him. Do you get it? So true love is other-oriented. It's, it's service-oriented. James 2, 2-9. to nine. This is extremely important. Turn to James 2. I'm going to begin reading while you're turning there. But it says, For if there should be, come into your assembly, a man with gold rings, in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you, please sit here in this good spot. Now, I, I would think that would be right up here. You would probably think that it might be in the back. But anyways, but sit in this, in this good place right here and say to the poor man, you, stand over there, sit under the footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's amazing how much that comes up, isn't it? You do well, but if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. True love is not prejudicial. I rejoice in the Lord that we have a multi-ethnic ministry. I don't like to say multiracial because I believe there's only two races, believers and unbelievers, right? Okay? You're either of God or you're not of God. But the fact is that this is unheard of down south. This is a struggle point. And I have prayed for this for years. Because this is the body of Christ. Do you get it? The body of Christ. Some of you have never heard this before. How many of you can see me? If you can see me, put your hand up. You're all wrong. You can't see me. You, can, you knew that was coming. You knew I was gonna, it was a setup. Okay? You can't see me. You see the tent that I live in. If you cut off my arms and you cut off my legs and you burn my face in a fire, am I still me? I'm still... I'm st- what would you say? I'm Bob, especially in the water. I bob. That's right. Especially with no arms and no legs, man. That's why I'm, I'm bobbing. Anyways. But I'm still me. Get it? I am not what you're looking at. I live inside this tent. Some of you have darker tents than others. Some of you got tents with fur on it. Some don't. Okay? (laughs) God's made our tents all different. But you know what? Y'all got a tent. In one day, I'm going to leave this tent. Isn't that what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5? While I dwell in this tent. And that's what we're told in John chapter 1 about Jesus. That Jesus tabernacled, dwelt, the word is tabernacled. He tented among us. He took on a tent, man. I mean, the eternal God took on a tent and walked on the earth. And so why do we judge ourselves based upon whether we're Ozark Mountains or whether we're made by, by some other company? You get it? Your color is meaningless. Your nationality, quote unquote, is meaningless. Your ethnic background is meaningless. What matters is, are you a citizen of heaven or are you a citizen of earth? It doesn't matter whether your bank account is bigger, or whether your bank account is small. Whether you got one at all, it doesn't matter. True love is not prejudicial. Romans 13, 8-10. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other command, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. True love seeks not to harm their neighbor. True love seeks to edify, to build up one another. The manifestation of your love is going to come out by how you're treating your neighbor. 1 John 3, 14-19 says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. We ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but indeed in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Sound familiar? We've been memorizing last month 
the first part of that section, and this month, the second part, along with some other verses. How can you say you love the brethren? You love your neighbor. You love your enemy. If you see they have a need, and you're not seeking to meet it. If you have this world's goods, you have the ability to meet that need, and you choose to shut up the storehouse from them. How can you say you really love them? Now, I understand there's tough love sometimes, and sometimes people have to, to bear the consequences, and they have to be able to move forward. I understand that. But we're not talking about the exceptions. We're talking about the rule here. What is the rule of your life? Is everything you have yours? Or is everything you have God's? And God has given it to you as a stewardship to use for his glory and the furtherance of his kingdom. When you die, your houses, your cars, your boats, your goodies, your toys, your tools, your sheds, they're all gone. They're not going with you. You know the proverbial statement, right? There's never a what behind the hearse. You all. That's exactly, you, you know it. And yet we don't think about it. We act like we can. Like we can take a whole train of U-Hauls and maybe a couple of rider trucks along with them. But God has given you everything that you have to serve him and his kingdom, to advance his glory and his kingdom. John 15. True love is self-sacrificing. Jesus said, no greater love has any man than this, that he what? Lays down his life for his friend. That's a rough thing. Are you willing to die for me? Oh, my hand's going up. No. <laughs> but I can you know, point at me, but now point at anybody else sitting here. Are you really willing to die for them? If, if, if you had the choice, you could step in and take their place, would you be willing to do that? Paul said, listen, I wish that I could be accursed so my brethren could come to Christ. That's huge. That's a man who preached it and understood what he was talking about. He's saying, man, I wish I could go to hell and the rest of Israel be saved. If I could die, if I could be separated from the presence of God so that everybody else in the world, I don't know if I could say that. I mean, that's huge. First Corinthians 13, we don't have time to go through all this, but it's that love passage, right? Love isn't rude. Love isn't boastful. Love is kind. Love doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. Love is persevering, isn't it? In that same kind of love that we read at the marriage, weddings, is supposed to go for every single one of us in every single category of that scope. Love isn't rude to your enemies. I hate sometimes hearing about disparaging comments toward our president if he's not of my ilk. I'm not talking about my color. I'm talking about my political party. How, how easy it is for us to be dishonoring to the one in Romans 13 we're told to honor. And Paul was talking about Nero, who was burning Christians on a pole stuck you know where with tar over them and, and lit up so they could be the streetlights of Rome. And Paul says, you need to honor him. Because there is no authority other than that which is set up by God. I'm to love in that same way. Now by these three, faith, hope, and love. But the greater of these is, is love. Greater than faith. Greater than hope. Because you may say you have faith, but your faith not being evidenced by your love is what? Is dead. I hope I haven't beat the horse too much here, but this is powerful for me. And we have to end this section of it. We'll move on to other attributes of God, but the holiness of God and the love of God, they go so hand in hand to, I think, the fullness of what God desires for us to be and emulate in this world. And we fall so short of it. God is love. He who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. The question is, where do you abide? If you abide in God, you're going to abide in love. Do you? 
how does the expression of your love match up with that of Scripture? And finally, how visible is the love of God in and through you? How good is the reflection that you give? I mean, is it distorted pretty good? Or is it a good one? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love to us. Lord, I don't say that just flippantly. I am overwhelmed at what you have done for me and what you have done for us. I know how much I have spit upon, how much I have abused your son. That I probably would have been been that Roman soldier pounding the nails, casting lots for the garment. And yet you looked down on me and you said, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Lord, I pray that you'll help me to love you with all my heart, with all my soul, and all my mind. Lord, that my my heart would be sanctified, that my soul would be sanctified, that my, my mind would be transformed and sanctified so that I would just operate that way, exuding your love to others. And I pray that for these others, Lord, that you would cause them to grow in your love and in your grace, that you would cause them to approve things that are excellent, that they would be filled with the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit of righteousness, the fruit of righteousness, and that they would reflect your love to this world as well, and that all men would know that we are your disciples, and that you would allow us the privilege then of seeing many come into your kingdom for your glory, relishing in your love, and then reflecting it to others as well. Lord, help us to desire not to be conformed to the world, but to be conformed to the image of Christ. And we don't ask this according to our flesh, because our flesh desires the things of the world and the things of sin, but Lord, we ask it according to the Spirit that you have placed within us for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.